Hello, and welcome to the Game Audio Hour, a fortnightly podcast where we discuss all things game audio, from creative ideas to the latest techniques, project experiences to audio secrets. Here is where you'll find in-depth coverage and opinions related to game audio. I'm Vincent Diamante, and I'm still doing that incomplete sentence there in the middle of that description, which is totally fine by me. Um, I'm hoping it's okay with you, Alex. How are you doing? Hello, Vince. I, I'm fairly well. Um, it's a Friday night here as we record this, and it's been a it's been a bit of a roller coaster roller coaster ride of a week this week. So I'm somewhat emotionally exhausted, physically exhausted, but I'm here. I'm ready. And it just occurred to me, listening to the intro spiel there, when was the last time we actually discussed audio secrets? Like, what what is what's an audio secret that we can uh, we can we can squeeze in today? An audio secret. Secretly, Vince has bought a Neve outboard unit and is secretly not using it yet. Is that an audio secret? Uh, don't don't say that yet. I mean, I do want to use it more and more, but I'm still practicing, honestly. Um, yeah, well, that's, I, you know, it's it's fun to use new gear, but I can't just willy nilly put it somewhere and think, oh right, it's going to sound absolutely perfect. Um, this particular thing we talked about it a little last episode, but it really is meant to be at the end of a mastering chain. But it's certainly good enough and has some interesting features that are worth tracking with. I'm I'm not going to deal with that right now, and I'd have to mess around with all my routing in order to make that work. So for now, it's just the mic into my sound card, and that's what we get. Yeah, but that's um. Uh, I mean, I'm joking, of course, and I think that the the it is really important, especially with outboard gear like that. I mean, more so maybe than software. It is really, really important to just take it slowly and to learn it and enjoy that learning process of finding out all the little idiosyncrasies and sort of the quirks and the the shortcuts and the you know the things that are difficult and just sort of exploring all of that and taking your time to learn it because yeah it I mean essentially it's a musical instrument of sorts. I think that that is really hitting the nail on the head. Uh, we have a lot of interesting instruments at our disposal. Nowadays, the instruments that we have are the devices in our, our studio, whether they be hardware or software. And our ability to actually manipulate those instruments is what goes into our sound. It's also really interesting how before this time, the instruments were the game systems themselves. Like the Super Nintendo was an instrument of many many music composers and sound designers for many years. And then the Nintendo before that, you know, the Nintendo, a lot of people know about the Nintendo as an instrument and as an instrument, it could be expanded with different sorts of provisions provided by different chips inside of different cartridges that could expand overall audio capabilities. And then before that, you had simpler game systems that had little PSG chips or or not even game systems, computers. Computers had an interesting sound as well. The sound of the Commodore 64 versus the Atari ST and uh, back in the early 80s. On this topic of the sort of late 80s, 90s game audio, there's a, there's a few sort of questions that I thought might be interesting for us to cover, which may be helpful for people in just reflecting about 
position that we are we are at at the moment with game audio. To begin with, I fondly recall a project I did uh, with a friend of mine who was a, a huge fan of the ZX Spectrum. And of course, um, Sir, Clive, Sir Clive Sinclair uh, sadly passed away, was it a week ago or two weeks ago now? Um, uh, who, of course, was the inventor of the ZX Spectrum, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, that, that sounds right. Uh, I, I'm aware of the machine, but obviously over in um, over in not America, over in the old world, uh, <laughs> you guys are far more familiar. Yeah, the... Um... The reason I bring it up is because in doing, uh, so I have this friend who is a, um, he was a huge fan of the ZX Spectrum back in the day and kind of cut his teeth in game programming on a ZX Spectrum. And so as sort of like a fun project, he decided that he wanted to make a game um, that would run on a ZX Spectrum emulator. So he asked me to do the audio for it. And it's just, a, it wasn't for release or anything like that. It was just like a fun pet project, a personal project. Um, and in doing the audio, it was, I, I don't remember, it was just some years ago now, and I don't remember the actual specifics of it, but I do remember that um, the process involved, basically, uh, I would create a sound, sound effects. I have to recall correctly now, I think I was creating sound effects with square waves mapping them to times and hertz rates, I believe it was, and then he would transfer those uh, hertz rates and um, times into code, which would then be played in the game. I think that's how it went along. But anyway, the point of bringing this up was on the ZX Spectrum, when you want to play a sound, I think, I believe the, in order to actually play a sound, the entire system, the, the graphics update whatever's updating the graphics has to pause while the sound is playing. So mm. as a result, you need to keep your sound effects very, very short sound effects. Well, I mean, they're kind of bleeps and bloops, you know, very primitive synthesized sound. You need to keep them very, very short because whenever they're playing, nothing can be moving on the screen. Interestingly, what this does, this kind of limitation, is if you think about what that looks like, if you have like a character that's walking across the screen and you make them, uh, let's say you make them fire a bullet or something, then you trigger a sound like a blip from the, from the, the sound chip, uh, to like a square wave or something like that. You imagine that everything visually freezes for a moment while the sound is playing. And then when the sound stops playing, the movement continues. So then if you imagine that, it's this beautiful emphasis of the sound effect because the whole screen is frozen for that instant that tiny instant when the sound is playing and kind of like what you see later in um uh you see that effect done intentionally especially often in in fighting games right where to sort of reinforce the impact of this character hitting the other character the animations will pause for a moment and it's kind of I remember when we were doing that project on the ZX Spectrum, it was really cool that I thought, wow, it's, it feels really dramatic having everything stop when the sound is playing just for a tiny instant. But that's actually just a result of the way that the hardware has to do these things. It's not, a, you know, it's not something that we had control over. The reason that I wanted to bring this up was because on a number of aspects and a number of levels, and here's where I want to get your opinion on a few things, I feel that the... Um, the sort of limitless nature of game audio now 
we've lost quite a few things along the way, haven't we? Like we've lost this sort of, you know, these happy accidents and these um, uh, in 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 order to sort of overcome these kinds of limitations. We, uh, you know, in in those days, um, there are these nice little accidental benefits of having the hardware limit what we do. And we don't have any of that now. I can think of another few examples, actually, which I'll get into. But can you think of some examples, Vince, where the hardware limitations in those days, the 80s and the 90s, in terms of game audio, can you think of specific examples where those limitations would actually benefit aesthetically what's going on from the musical or sound perspective? Hmm. Where it actually benefits, it's... Hmm. I'm... I'm having a hard time thinking of a really concrete example, but I can I can definitely imagine it in the abstract. You know, just things like limited polyphony, yeah. You know, uh, basically becoming its own mixing heuristic. Right. You know, it's like <laughs> okay, um, I I have all these sounds that correspond to the things that we're doing as a player, and how should I actually? handle all of those sounds well um, you can have ultimate control over it you can think about different ways in which to mix these things properly whether mixing sounds together or mixing them in software certainly there have been a lot of people that have made software and different types of sound drivers for those early systems in order to expand the polyphony you now things like uh, uh you know turrican comes to mind where mm. The Amiga is nominally a four-channel, has, has four channels of polyphony, uh, but because of uh, the software, you could actually play six or eight channels depending on right. which Turrican you're playing. Right, right. Um, you know, so, but I can imagine that having some unintended positive consequences in terms of the design of the the feel of the game like like you were talking about with the the spectrum i've never actually played on one of those early spectrums that had mm. literally just one channel of audio and it's a very simple sound that you could actually play through it and the and the rest of the computer just has to stop for a while while it plays the sound. <laughs> it's, it's great, it's, isn't it? But when you are making that allusion to fighting games, I, I totally got it. It's um, in in fighting game world we call that hit stop, okay. and it's such an important part of the design, both for the person that is incurring the hit and the one that is executing. Um, the, the dramatic of it, the feeling, the gravitas, as well as the timing of it. It's not just stopping because you can't do anything. It's actually a very purposeful moment that allows for reaction or allows for contemplation. Um, well, actually, funny you to know, say that in fighting games where, you know, if you're not familiar, it's things are happening on a millisecond basis rather than a second basis. So, yeah. but it, but it is really true that uh, the importance of being able to stop and contemplate. It's, um, you know, as an interesting side effect, you know, the, uh, when, when everything stops like that in a fighting game, you know, perhaps like on the ZX spectrum, you know, perhaps an additional benefit of that is there's a, a moment when you are left with nothing visual, but purely just, audio you know you, you just hear the sound it's the only thing that's sort of dynamic in that tiny instant when 
when one character makes contact with another. Um, so it's sort of like a, like on the ZX Spectrum, it's sort of a, it's a natural emphasis of what's going on on the audio, just because visually everything is stopped. What you mentioned there about polyphony is uh, um, not only technically, as far as mixing uh, from the engineering aspect, but I think also aesthetically, it was hugely important. I think to the um, uh, you know the early game music, and also something that we've also definitely lost these days, and that you know that is that the fact that like for example you know if you're making a soundtrack on the Amiga, you've got four channels to work with of of eight bit um, sampled sound. That's all you've got. So that kind of means that from an aesthetic point of view, you really need to be very very focused in in your um, sort of musical goals in each part of your soundtrack. You need to make sure that, you know, this very, very purposeful about what you place where because you've only got four channels to work with. I do notice when I listen to the work of newcomers to game audio, uh, people with, you know, a little bit less experience than myself, um, I do notice that that's one thing that there's so much going on, you know, in often case that student work, you just hear so much happening and i often sort of think to myself if this person was required to strip this music down or for example this the sound effect track down to absolute bare minimum because of some technical limitation it might actually be helpful to force the person to think what is actually important right now and what is the musical element or the sound effect element that i really want the player to be hearing at this point Rather than just sort of you know packing everything in there to to make it really full and big and wide and fat and loud, um, so that polyphony limit was definitely helpful, I think, in forcing people to be very selective and very purposeful about their musical choices. I agree with that a whole lot. There's only so many things that you really need to hear, I think, in a video game. <laughs> Um, I mean, you can tell basically by how many video games there are out there where you can really fully function. You can play the game extremely well, play it at a high level, even without the sound there. You know, right. there are a lot of sounds that are just not that helpful, that aren't really saying all that much. But when you have those limitations, you really come to an understanding with what you are actually trying to get the player to understand. What sound effects are actually saying things that are meaningful? Uh, what sound mm. effects are saying things that are important, but perhaps are more about further immersing them in the world rather than saying something really important and up-to-date about the state of the game at that very moment? Um, mm. You know, there, there's a lot of different types of sound that exist out there and knowing all of that stuff, being aware of all of that stuff and managing it, managing the communication of sound is more than managing the overall mix and making something that just sounds pleasing to the ear. Right. It's sort of a shame. Not a, Well, it's not a shame. Of course, it's wonderful that now we work in a time when we're basically unlimited you know we we can work without any limits really and do whatever we want in game audio uh, and you know tools like the our beloved middleware solutions like fmodern wise etc they even allow us to sort of delve into the the technical aspects of how our work is implemented in gameplay 
without any knowledge of programming or anything. And it's it's amazing, you know, if you think about um, how far we've come and, and just the power that we have as game audio engineers to create these soundscapes. It's it's fantastic. However, that classic superhero movie line with the great power comes great responsibility. And that is one aspect, I think, that um, it's with all of this limitless potential, it, it's just become a whole lot more difficult, really. <laughs> you know, like what you were describing just there, if you had if you had time warped somebody doing sound for a game in the late 80s to uh, 40 years in the future to now and said okay here's what you can work with now they would probably be like totally bewildered it's like well how do i even approach this it's so difficult there's so many things that you can do how do you rein it in like how do you in those days with the amiga or the any of those um 8-bit or 16-bit systems, you know, you, you didn't have a choice. You just had to rein it in. But now you do have the choice, and it's just so much harder now, isn't it? Yeah. Those middleware tools, they make it easy to just put stuff in, regardless of what stuff it is. Um, it's right. just trivially easy now. Uh, be like, oh, I want background ambient bed. I want player action sounds. I want... Uh, granular, randomly uh, triggering sounds from this particular entity in the world in order to mimic a crowd that's murmuring. I'm just <laughs> It's so easy to do all that stuff. Um, and something has to rein you in. You know, back in the day, it really was the, the hardware itself. Things like, you know, three channels on a Sega Master System or on the... Right. Um, you know, four channels on a Commodore Amiga. You know, there's there's so much stuff that you want to do, but you can't, and you have to make those hard decisions. Uh, nowadays, there are really very few hard decisions out there. Um, mm. It feels like, uh, actually, as I'm saying that, I am thinking a little bit about the mobile space where right. you still feel some limits here and there, even in audio, even on a thing like the iPhone, which is the equivalent of a PlayStation 3. Like, right. <laughs> you know, it's it's really quite an amazing system. It's incredibly powerful. But then you have that limit of um, memory and how much right. do you want to allow the player to download over the App Store and, and whatnot. Because there are right. some limits there. Things like, oh, 250 megabytes, which is a, a soft limit that, is used by a lot of companies when they want to maximize the ability of people to download their game wherever, whether they're on Wi-Fi or not. Right. But even then, 250 megabytes, ugh, you could do a whole lot with 250 megabytes. You could do a whole lot with 50 megabytes, with 40 right. megabytes. Yeah, I, I remember when uh, an Amiga tracker module of like 700K was like, oh my God, that's like an epic. <laughs> 700k that's a that's huge Ooh, yeah now of course like 700k would you'd be lucky to get one sample in 700k <laughs> oh it's true there is some uh another aspect uh to all of this that um i wanted to uh, uh discuss with you as well before we do that though let's just sound off on some of our favorite soundtracks from that era and i mean you you must have loads wow like 80s, so 80s and 90s, 
Mm, let me think about this. Um, I grew <laughs> up as a Nintendo kid. Right. And as such, there's this awareness that I actually didn't play the ideal sounding versions of many of those games that came out of Japan because of the way that the expansion, um, the way the expansion for extra audio facility was wired in the American Nintendo system. So you couldn't just, um, you know, companies just elected not to use that. Castlevania in Japan sounded different than Castlevania in America because there would be an extra chip that's wired there to has some extra voices. Regardless, I think that there are some wonderful, wonderful soundtracks that came about in that era. You know, and you could probably guess some of those things, things like um, you know, the Sunsoft games, uh, Blaster Master, um, Batman, uh, you know, Konami games, uh, you know, things like Contra and, and Metal mm. Gear and uh, Castlevania, I have already mentioned, you know, really wonderful games. And then later on, I learned more about these other versions that came out only in Japan that relied on expansion functionality of extra chips that were provided in the cartridge, things that unlocked one or two more extra voices that added extra flavor to these soundtracks. And it was really amazing. Hold on, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to school me here because um as I will explain in a moment, I was not of the Nintendo school. So the 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 US version of the Nintendo games that were released did not contain um, these extra chips with the extra capabilities? That's right, yeah. So I mean, why... that, this was, there, there were a lot of differences between these systems. You know, part of it was because of the difference in American marketing and how they were they were positioning the product. Part of it was the cost of manufacturing the cartridges was themselves different by mm. virtue of including a chip or not in the package. Mm. But yeah, let's see. Uh, one of the most famous ones is uh, Castlevania and its use in various, uh, let's see, the use of the VRC6 mapper, uh, which was a specific Konami chip that allowed you to do a couple more things. Uh, Specifically, it gave you three extra sound channels. Uh, it mm. gave you one more sawtooth and two more pulse waves that could play along with the already existing three um, three waveforms and noise channel and pulse width modulator that's uh, built into the NES. So mm. you're almost doubling the polyphony count when you're going from Castlevania in America to Castlevania in Japan. It's it's kind of crazy. So so the the score for Castlevania was then was it rewritten for the Western hardware? No, it wasn't. They just simply omitted um <laughs> they just omitted those channels. Just chopped it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's horrible. Am I, am I, well, that's that that had to have been very disappointing for uh you know for sorry what is the name of the composer of the Castlevania score? Oh my gosh. Oh what am I thinking? I I'm just going to I have the internet in front of me. I could look up <laughs> Castlevania 3 composer and just okay. Hidenori Maizawa. Uh okay. Oh a couple of people uh Jun Funahashi, Yukie Morimoto, Yoshinori Sasaki. Uh yeah, sorry I don't have those names. Like okay. On the top of my head. But yeah, if you go on YouTube, you could easily see, hey, here's Castlevania 3 
playing just on the NES, the American system. And here's the Japanese version playing the stuff that you've heard in America, but also three more channels provided by a separate chip that is in the cartridge. That, so the, yeah. Do you know if do you know if the composers were aware that those three extra channels were eventually going to get chopped for a different like localized version of the game? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> That's a wow. Like, can you imagine like taking any of one of your scores for any of the projects you've worked on and just sort of having somebody arbitrarily cut out you know a whole half of the tracks in it and just you know ship the rest it's fine <laughs> you know so the funny thing is i have a quick answer and that's yes because that's how i started out my career oh, okay <laughs> yeah so um my very first professional work was um i guess ironically working for konami <laughs> konami okay. had an office in southern california and i was tasked with making music and sound for cell phone games and cell phone mm. games in the mid 2000s was not the same as cell phone games in the era of iphone right. these things were very very primitive yeah. um, some of them less primitive because you had a, a team of programmers that was willing to make things that were really taking advantage of their particular platforms and hardware but most of them were pretty primitive because they had to be able to be made and built across multiple platforms. So Nokia mm. Series 60 and Symbian, um, you know, Sony Ericsson phones operated in a totally different way. LG right. phones, Samsung phones operated totally different ways. And you had to make builds that were working in Symbian, uh, working in J2ME, Java. Uh, working right. in all these different platforms and different capabilities. On the music front, you actually had a similar thing going on. And there was a format that I worked with called SP MIDI. And the SP there stood for scalable polyphony. And <laughs> embedded in the MIDI is actually information about what channels, what MIDI channels to prioritize when being played back on different phone handsets. Wow, that's so cool. I had to just sort of predict if I'm being played on a low end handset and I set my MIDI channels this way and I set my upper polyphony limit this way, the sound is probably going to sound like this. And if it's being played on like a really hot $500 phone, it's going to sound like this with a full 32 voice polyphony and whatnot. And, you know, and of course, you know, you know, music is always going to be taken uh, is always going to be taking a backseat to sound effects. You know, sound mm. effects whenever they happen, they're going to steal a channel. You have to designate which channel they're going to steal and and stuff okay. like that. So, you know, this was on top of that. Um, so so yeah, I, <laughs> I, it's it's kind of ironic. Yeah yeah, I started out in this era of I'm making sound and music. I'm not quite sure how it's going to sound. I know how it's going to sound on my three, four, five different devices that I would have the time to personally test, but not on the literally hundreds and hundreds of other handsets that are out in the world. Uh, actually, you know, that, that does sound a little bit like uh, making music for an Android device now, though, doesn't it? <laughs> a little bit. Any, yeah, making anything for Android, but that let's not go there. Um <laughs> That's amazing. Like, uh, at least in your case, you know, you, you did have some degree of control over, you know, what aspect of the music would be chopped when it when it reaches other devices. Uh, 
in the sense that you could sort of plan for it. But uh, yeah, I, I do wonder whether the the Japanese composers behind something like the Castlevania soundtrack ever knew that like half of their work <laughs> would be like mercilessly cut in half and then shipped off to an entire continent of people to listen to. <laughs> it's just horrible, isn't it? Yeah, that would be a that would be a great question to ask. I, I, hey, have you when were you first made aware that something like Castlevania three did not sound the way that you originally intended? Or you know, obviously, it's not just Konami. Castlevania is just one of these very famous examples because the Castlevania three soundtrack was pretty fantastic. Um, let me think about this. Uh, do, 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 do Mr. Gimmick. There is a really, really great platforming game that mm. came out with another sound chip in the cartridge, and it sounds good. Mm. Really awesome bass, really awesome textures alongside the melody and counter melodies that would be handled by the main Nintendo. Mm. But the game was also shipped, uh, not in America, but it was shipped in Scandinavia. I think it had a, a Finnish or a Swedish release. Okay. And over there, it was a similar thing. You did not have that extra chip hooked up. So they literally heard the very basics of the soundtrack. I imagine that they probably knew what was going to be heard if it got ported because the the Nintendo and the Rico chip that was built in were allocated the main bones of the musical piece. And then the stuff that was being played by the extra chip on the cartridge, even though it was a fantastically powerful chip, it was, I think, a chip that was used in various arcade boards at the time. Right. Uh, even though it was so powerful, it was only relegated to um, more supplemental roles in the music and sound. Mm. Mm. Yeah, the, the, when you have those extra capabilities on those early systems, it's immediately obvious, isn't it? And I think the the um the two most famous examples on the amiga at least so as as far as i'm concerned i was uh cut my gaming teeth i guess you could call it on a apple II. um mm -hmm. and then because all, all the cool kids at school had commodore 64 but uh we had an apple II for some reason uh but then you know we we raced past everybody else in getting uh commodore amiga and of course you know as is well known outside pretty much outside of america Commodore Amiga really dominated the the scene in the late eighties and early nineties, and um, uh, Australia, Europe was just massive, and you know everybody had one. There, in my town, there was not much Nintendo anything. Uh, I think a few people had uh, some um, Sega Mega Drives at the time. It was just you know that the cool thing to have was a, was an Amiga five hundred. Anyway, the the sort of flagship game audio soundtrack of legend on the on the Amiga of there's quite a few but of course the most famous one is Turrican 2 by Chris Yulesbeck and mm -hmm. that I believe actually is five channels uh, but was it through... five channels I know it was more than four channels I think I mentioned it and I think I said six or yeah I think it's five um oh, I man. believe that um um Yulesbeck had written some yeah some funky I don't know, some funky layer or some funky uh, uh, um, integration with the system to allow him to use five channels of sound for that. Uh, the other really good example that that blew a lot of people away was the soundtrack for a game called Super Stardust. H, I think it was Super Stardust. Might have been, yeah, just Super Stardust, I think was the name. 
Um, and mm. that had, I think that had either six or eight channels running as well, which was just sort of, you know, and it's immediately obvious, especially if you're used to listening to four channel sound and then suddenly, you know, Turrican 2 comes on and the, you know, the, those classic, those classic chords in the background, there's a sustain there. Like, again, this is comes part of the, 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 where the, the limitations really force your hand and force you to prioritize. Generally, of course, you know, if you have these chords playing in the background, you know, most games, almost especially demo scene music, you would have like drums on one channel, then you would have bass, and then you would have chords, and then you'd have a melody. Uh, but the chords would, one chord would always cut off the next because a channel can only play one sample at a time. And so you're sort of forced into this shifting to, between chords in a very, very abrupt manner, which would, of course then inspire people to create that classic sort of gated chord sound that you hear in so much Amiga demo scene music because it just was not very good at, you know, uh, these long sustained chords would always sound a bit, bit you know, crappy when you sort of cut yeah. one off and go to the next one. But if you sort of cut them all very, very short and make it sort of like this gated chord sound, it would sound great. And uh, then Turrican 2 came along and all of a sudden these chords are like sustaining beautifully. And it's like, that is amazing. How does he do that? And then of course, yeah, you find out that it's actually not four channels, it's five. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. But this um, kind of brings me to the second big question that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, this is going to get pretty, pretty deeply musicological. So for any listeners who are sensitive to uh, deep musicological discussion, then this is the time to switch off. And <laughs> no, of course, none of our, none of our wonderful listeners are sensitive <laughs> to such things. Uh, you know, this, this is what we're here for. The question that I have for you, and this is going to get pretty hairy, um, is Okay, so we've talked about things that we've lost in the process of gaining all of this you know, limitless power in game audio. One other thing that I think, just as a hypothesis that I want to, to sort of float here, is have we lost an identity in a, like the genre of video game music? Let me elaborate. In those days, when I was playing the Amiga, people would ask me what kind of music I liked. And I would say, I like Amiga music. And then they would say, what is that? I would say, well, it's like demo scene music or the music that you hear in games on the Amiga. Right. The, the sort of genre of video game music seemed to have existed at that time as something that was kind of distinct from anything else. And it was formed by these hardware limitations, you know, whether you want to call it the, you know, chip tune or the style of music that was on the Amiga with its four channels of sample sound or, you know, the, the hybrid of those, they're all sort of um, forming this stylistic genre of video game music. So just take that thought, put that on pause. Now, fast forward to today. If somebody asked you, what does video game music sound like? There's not really an answer because nowadays we have so much power and, and limitless you know, potential that video game music essentially is basically sort of mainstream or sometimes not mainstream genres of music, you know, like orchestrated music with an orchestra. 
or you know rock music or electronica or techno or you know all, all of these different sort of genres that we work with in video game music now we're basically following the pathway of established genres in you know mainstream uh music for entertainment i guess you should call it not mainstream but you know just general music we, we're following genre cues that people are familiar with from general music whereas in those days just because of these hardware limitations there's a very clear and definite style which we would call video game music so my question for discussion with you vince is have we even lost this identity of video game music now that we have no limitations hmm. I warned you. Yeah, <laughs> I warned. I warned you. Tough. I mean, I'm thinking about this, and I'm 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 actually still stuck on the concept of video game music and the various places that video game music was at in different ports of time and game history. Like right. You're talking about the Amiga. Uh, like there are a lot of people for whom game music is the Sega Genesis or Mega Drive. And that's right. so distinctly different because it has that FM chip in there. Um, right. And then you've got the Super Nintendo, which was kind of Amiga-ish in the sense that it had, you know, limited channels, uh, sample playback for each of those channels. It's, hmm. And then it yeah, kept on expanding from there. Uh, yeah, PlayStation and Sega Saturn was really interesting because you still had that expanded polyphony of right. what was established and things like the Amiga and Super Nintendo, except instead of four channels and eight channels, it was now 16, 24, 32 channels of right. that sort of playback. Um, I'm not um, I'm not specifically, of course, lim when I define, you know, video game music, of course, I'm not just limiting it to the Amiga, of course, across the board, music in video games you know the thing is is that if you take you know some of the let's how about this then like take some of the classic soundtracks that were clearly influenced by like the the you know the let's say like the jazz fusion going on at the time like mm -hmm. you know t-square or cassiope or that sort of um, electric jazz fusion that was going on at the time or let's say uh, like the new wave stuff that's going on the, the new wave music that was influencing a lot of the demo scene music and stuff like that so if you took you know if somebody um was playing some cassiopeia and then you actually that's not a good example because i can't think of a can't think of a good example off the top of my head of that specific um uh you know that time when game music the the, the games that were trying to imitate that sound um i'm thinking outrun maybe i can think of an example of a track that was very specifically aping T-Square. There's a track from, I think it was Rolling Thunder 2 or Rolling Thunder 3 that was basically, hey, doesn't this sound cool? It's totally Megalith from their new S album, right. um, which is hilarious. And it's actually a really rocking track. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a lot of interesting stuff in the game music world where, hey, this track, that's all cool. Uh, yeah, let's just try to put that track in our video game as close to as uh, legally and ethically possible. Sure. Yeah, I, I'm sort of I'm thinking more of the things that were influenced as opposed to the things that were, you know, clearly imitating. But the 
the, the the point that I was trying to make was that like if you if you took one of those soundtracks off the video game and you played it to somebody and said, "Hey, listen to this jazz fusion track," right? Or, "Hey, listen to this cool piece of you know orchestrated music." In those days, they'll most likely listen to that and say, "This is not jazz fusion. This is video game music," right? <laughs> That's my point, is that in those days, because of those limitations and because of the, the aesthetics that they forced, you could not sort of, you know, there was this thing called video game music because, simply put, you know, that the limitations would not allow the composers to get something that sounded just like jazz fusion or just like, you know, an orchestra playing or, or, or any of these, right? And so unlike today... Where you could take, you know, some of the fine soundtracks that you know our peers and colleagues and friends in in game audio are making, and you could say, "Hey, listen to this jazz fusion track," and nobody would be able to tell you that's not jazz fusion; that's video game music. Nobody could say that because you know it would be perfectly passable as a as whatever genre that you are trying to achieve, you know, for the game that you're working on. So that's kind of my point: is this like now? You wouldn't find anybody saying that's not classical music, that's video game music. Nobody can say that anymore. So, you know, have have we I mean, unless of course you're intentionally making music nowadays that is uh harking back to those old sounds like chip tune or, you know, if it's done intentionally, that's different. But then maybe that is the cue that we have lost in the mainstream at least, we have lost this genre mm. called video game music. And, Maybe. and now it's, yeah. I mean, I'm kind of thinking about it as genre, but I'm going back to the whole idea of video game systems as instruments and connecting it to our own musical traditions outside of game music. So, for example, Bach. You know, Bach's great. Uh, Bach has written all sorts of different pieces. Uh, we think about something like the well-tempered clavier. And that's just a set of pieces for a well-tempered keyboard. Now, that keyboard could be anything. It could be an organ. It could be a harpsichord. It could be a clavichord. Probably not a piano because the piano really didn't come into its own at that time. But, right. um, you know, it could be played on all these different types of instruments. And they're really drastically different. And yet they're all perfectly valid means of musical expression um i think you would you could talk to some people who are bach enthusiasts and person one might say i really love this particular fugue played on an organ and another mm. person would say i think that this fugue is really quite exceptional on a harpsichord and those two things couldn't be more different if we want to talk about in the abstract, it's like, oh, the envelope of the sounds of these things. You know, the harpsichord is this plucked string instrument and the sound decays immediately after you hit any particular note, which is totally unlike an organ. Hmm. And yet with that, the music is so good regardless. And there are reasons why you would prefer having it expressed one way and not the other. Uh, I feel like video game music kind of has a similar thing going for it, where it's not necessarily video game music as genre, but the but the instrument as an expression of our particular music idea. Mm. 
you know, when you condense it down to the NES, whether you're either working with the limitations of the Nintendo or fighting against it and and uh, being able to manipulate things in order to fit parts of the music in where they weren't uh, previously prescribed in the sheet music. Hey, the NES can express this musical idea in a particular way, and there would be some people that would love to appreciate that, uh, mm. just like someone might uh, love to appreciate uh, a whole symphony that has been reduced to a piano. Mm. So that, that's kind of where I'm going with that. It's like, oh yeah, I, I love listening to, you know, Lucas Arts games. You know, Lucas Arts games as expressed through. Um, the FM synth of an ad lib version of a soundtrack versus mm. the, um, you know, the fully realized uh, MIDI that would drive uh, like um, a Roland board, like an SCC one that's sound canvas or right. maybe something even further than that, because, you know, there, there was facility for that in the game and in the hardware at the time. But uh, I, I think that there's appeal to uh, both sides of that. Incidentally, though, Vince, if you were working on a project and the um, the client said to you, make it sound like video game music, what would you do? Well, there's a lot of things there. I would, I would ask, do you mean, do you want it to sound like the instrumentation of the time, whether it be something like an NES or an Amiga, something where it's limited timbrely or limited in terms of polyphony? Or something else, because there might be other motivations for the music composition as well. Right. Uh, things like the rhythm of the music. Oh, the, mm. the, the music has a particular rhythm because there's an expectation that the player is playing this type of very fast-paced platforming action game. Right, right. Uh, so th there's that. But, you know, it's kind of... I, I would say there, there's a lot of similarity between an ask like that and an ask in the film music world. The director says, hey, I, I think that the music for this scene should sound kind of medieval. Right. Do you really want it to sound medieval? Do you want it to sound like the, a bunch of singers singing from script that doesn't even have notes on a grand staff, a la modern music <laughs> composition? Like right. they're, they're literally singing these little noems of blobs going up and down and understand their... Um, their traditions of Gregorian chant. Is that what you mean by medieval music? Or do you just mean, I want it to be played on lutes and harpsichords? <laughs> right. You know, so like, there's, a, there's a lot of things there. And I'd say that there's a, a connection there. Uh, like lutes and harpsichords are like our NES and Amiga. And the difference between noems and modern music uh, construction and composition and, and how it's actually um, conveyed to players is uh, probably similar to other more deeper motivations for musical composition in the video game world. Right. It is interesting that like as our craft, you know, as video game music, it's, you know, we've been really lucky over the past 15, 15 years, I suppose you would say, maybe a bit less, maybe 15 or 10 years um, for you know, just generally the sophistication of music and video games has has grown wonderfully. And along with that, you know, people 
take it much more seriously now. You know, it, it's it really it's not just bleeps and bloops from a small chip trying to sound like something. But you, you know, it's actually it's actually taken very very seriously in, on its own merits, not necessarily as video game music anymore, but just simply as music that exists alongside all of the you know main main mainstream. I don't like you saying that, but like the you know the the music for entertainment realm the video game music soundtracks exist very, very comfortably in that space now. And there's less of a distinction made anymore. And people don't really care that much anymore that, oh, you know, this wasn't written by somebody just, you know, in their studio making music for entertainment purposes. No, it was actually written for a video game. This is, uh, you know, Austin Wintry's score for Journey. Okay. You know, many people who who listen to that of course understand this comes from a video game but you know something like that of course clearly uh, evidently has you know been taken very very seriously as something far beyond just the soundtrack from a video game and that blurring of the idea of what video game music is and then the discussion that naturally has to come when your client asks you i just just make it sound like video game music and you need to say well hold on like what do you actually mean by that because it's not so clear anymore what video game music is is it actually the, the these tombral cues that come from the limitations of you know the iconic uh early platforms um that people in our generation grew up with uh or is it something deeper and you know something more um deeply stylistic and less to do with just the instrumentation and the sound of it yeah you know, I kind of want to keep on going with this, but bring it back to sound effects a bit. Because okay. I'm thinking a little bit about how we had to make sound effects back in the day. You mm. know, with low polyphony devices, whether you're thinking about something like that Sony Ericsson phone that I was targeting back in 2006, or the NES with its three or four channels of sound, um, or an Amiga, or... But, you know, your bloop from a PC speaker or a spectrum, you had to make some concessions and you had to figure out what is it that you're really telling the player with any particular sound effect. Right. So there was a lot of care that needed to be done when you had only a little bit of polyphony there and you had to make sound effects that I think did two things at the very least. One communicate clearly to the player that X is happening. And then two, sound cool. <laughs> and because often those two things, even if they're connected to the same action, whether it be um, an avatar jumping or firing a gun or an enemy um, changing state or something like that, often those two things would be at odds with each other. You know, sometimes if you make something that sounds cool, it might not necessarily sound clear. Right. And uh, nowadays we have all this modern facility. We have a lot of polyphony. We have a lot of memory. So why not cover those in two separate sounds, whether it be two layers of sounds or two child events inside of a single event in an F mod or Ys, uh, whether it be 
um, two channels of audio in maybe not something that's totally modern, like a, a PlayStation 1 or PlayStation 2. Okay, those are still limited, but you still had 24 channels of audio to deal with. Okay, so we can devote one sound to being the sound that clearly states to the player, hey, an action has just occurred. And then a second sound that actually provides the color and the nuance and the flavor of what that action is. Um, mm. And then you see that growing more and more with these modern video games. And I think that's really interesting. I think um, when I was not yet in the industry, still trying to figure things out, I was really surprised when I saw that particular action being taken in these modern action games like Gears of War. Uh, Gears of War had a lot of stuff in it. It's a big, bold, you know, Hollywood production type of third-person action game. And it had a mechanic that was really interesting. It had the mechanic of reloading your gun. But they made it into a little bit of a mini game where you could either reload your gun efficiently or mess up and your gun jams and you have to wait for it to clear before you can try reloading again. Hmm. And that was a place where they used that divide between the sound of these actions taking place and communicating the state of the game in a very clear, concise, abstract way to the player and the sounds of complication, the sounds of the flavor of the, the tumult that's happening as you're trying to execute this action. So like really two distinct things that come together but are all part of this one single action that you as a player are doing. Mm -hmm. And that's actually really cool to me. Maybe that's the sound of modern video games, the fact that you have to deal with the flavor, the 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 utter sound quality and communication of the narrative, as well as the very clear communication of the abstract game state to the player and and making them sound cool together. Yeah, I think you I think it's you're absolutely right. I mean that is a uh a, a, a concise sort of encapsulation of the challenge that we have now with sound effects. Um it's you also have aesthetic, you know, the, those aesthetic choices that you have to make as well, like in terms of realism versus something that sounds, um, you know, intentionally artificial or also, you know, like a player closing a door, you may not necessarily want to actually use a door for that sound. It may be something mm -hmm. that, that sort of evokes the, the sense of closing a door, but it's not actually a door. You've recorded something else or manipulated something else to give the same feeling, even though the um the 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 source is something that's totally different what from what the player actually sees and then of course the tricks that you play on the player in those situations where they're not actually listening to bro bones breaking it's actually a stick of celery right mm -hmm. <laughs> you know the the tricks that that you play that visually because it looks like that then your brain sort of hears the sound and associates that with what's what they're seeing even though if you just heard the sound on its own it, it's like that doesn't sound like a bone breaking that sounds like somebody bending a stick of celery you know um <laughs> it's uh all of these aspects sort of come into play with the work that we have to do now and um sound effects and music on the one hand 
Well, who's, I mean, I guess you could also say that really it has not, what I was going to say just now is that it's become so much more difficult because we have so many more choices to make. But then, yeah, I guess you could also argue that no, actually, it's not that much more difficult. It's just the difficulty has shifted. It's shifted from trying to get maximum potential out of this very, very limited hardware. I mean, just to, to, to bring it full circle back to what I mentioned at the beginning, you know, imagine if your video game, the entire experience had to stop whenever a sound is playing. Well, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that kind of limitation where, okay, in order to, to ensure that the sound is actually contributing to the experience and not detracting for it because the whole game is, is freezing every time the something is playing, you need to be very, very selective and purposeful with your sound effects creation. So the difficulty of dealing with that has just sort of shifted to a different area, I suppose, where the difficulties are no longer technical, but now they are entirely artistic and aesthetic and, and functional too, of course, as you said. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think my brain, having lived with the piano for so many decades, has is really putting things in that particular historical framing, looking at the technical limitations of something like a harpsichord where you mm. can't have dynamics anymore. You know, like, right. oh man, you, you pluck a string, that's it. It's going to be a hard pluck and you cannot really do quiet plucking. It just doesn't really work. Very limited right. dynamics. And then you go to Oregon where you have actually fantastic dynamics with a real big emphasis on the loud. It is right. extremely loud. It's amazing to do loud. And you can kind of do quiet too, but it's amazing at loud. <laughs> and then you go to the piano and actually, you know, the full name was the pianoforte. And they put the piano up front because it was a real technological game changer. The right. idea that you can play softly as well as loudly. And right. that unleashed a whole lot of artistic possibilities. Um, in the form of all of those great composers of the 1800s. Right. Um, yeah, I think there are some similar things going on here in the video game world too. But yeah, th- there's my brain. <laughs> That's my upbringing as a pianist there. It's uh, amazing. We've gone from talking about ZX Spectrums to talking about the, the piano. That's a nice little arc there. I like it. So uh, I guess we should come to a close here, but before we do that, we of course need to touch on some uh, conspicuous consumption. Uh oh. Yes. So, I, what what have you been enjoying this uh, this this past little while, Vince? Have you been getting into any good music or movies or books or video games or anything? Oh, have I? Let me pause here because I need to think about this. What the heck have I played, if anything? Um, this has been a really bad week for me, honestly. <laughs> oh man. Let's see. Have I played anything really interesting? Um, you know what? Uh, not so much. Lately, the thing that I have been most dealing with is actually older hardware devices. So I have a bunch of iPads that I've been using for various capabilities around my studio. Um, most notably MIDI instruments. Mm. But I've also been messing around with using those really old iPads to play really, really old games. So Mm. I have an iPad 2. 
and the iPad 2 is now more than 10 years old. And it is, I think, on iOS 9 or 10. Mm. Very, very old. If you're not familiar with iOS, right now they're on iOS 15. <laughs> so it's been a while. Um, also, those old iPads did not support 64-bit OSs. So there were a bunch of video games from the early era of iOS that never got updated to 64-bit. And right. the only way to play it is to have a really old device like I do. Right. So I was playing some really weird games. Let's see. There is actually a fighting game that came out for iOS back in the day called Osura Cross. Okay. And fighting game plus touchscreen is typically not a recipe for no. for awesome. But I actually liked this game. It's a really <laughs> okay. weird game made by these indie Korean dudes. It's it's cool. I say dudes, but actually it's mostly one person that has been spearheading this effort in this particular series of Korean fighting games for the last decade. So that was actually a really fun reprieve for me in the middle of a pretty crazy work week, honestly. So that, cool. that's my conspicuous consumption. How about you? Excellent. Yeah, actually, the um, um, do you know the the game Dark Nebula? Dark Nebula. No, what is that? Dark Nebula is um, uh, it was a game for yeah, for it's about ten years ago, and probably would run just great on your your iPad if you could actually um, you could actually find it. It's a it's a kind of a, a tilt game. It's actually made by a. I'm just looking at the uh, Wikipedia page for it. It's actually made by a Swedish studio. Yeah, with the um, wonderful name 1337. <laughs> uh, very, good, very good there. Um, yeah, actually, there was two versions of it. There was Dark Nebula ep Episode 1, which was uh, 2009, and Dark Nebula Episode 2, which was 2010. Um, and it's a, sort of one of these, um, uh, you know, tilts the iPad. It's a top-down game with a little... Um, character and you, you're sort of tilting the ipad to move the move this kind of robot through a maze essentially um it looks cool I'm yeah it was surprised. a this was 12 years ago wow yeah it's a amazing amazing it's very bitmap brothers mm. <laughs> very uh like the graphics were quite a bit ahead of their time and just very uh sort of classic 16 bits futuristic game um aesthetics anyway um, as for myself, I guess two things. Uh, I, uh, as I mentioned last episode, I've been playing Horizon Zero Dawn, which has been great, and I finished that just a few few days ago. Excellent game. And what, you know, what what is there to say about Horizon Zero Dawn that hasn't already been said by pretty much everybody? Yeah. Uh, and there's a yeah, whole bunch of people waiting for the sequel, uh, me included. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's coming um, at some stage, isn't it? Was it? I think it's what was it called? Um, Hidden West, Forbidden West? No. Yep. Um, yeah, and the other thing that I uh, have consumed this week, which was uh, really great, was um, uh, I went back and watched Blade Runner 2049 again, the second Blade Runner movie. Um, have you seen that? Oh, wow. You know, I haven't, mostly oh. because I was worried about how that might color my memories, which are overall positive of watching Blade Runner. Uh, okay, I can... I can tell you now, I will not spoil anything for you, but I will just say this much. It is exceptionally good. Well, in my opinion, of course, but uh, it is ex extraordinarily good. 
Hmm. And okay. um, the, the soundtrack is uh, by our old buddy Hans Zimmer and also Benjamin Wolfish. Uh, and the I soundtrack. I remember that. I, I remember seeing a lot of different videos related to uh, the music production for 2049. Right. So, yeah, that, it that is was cool. It is exceptionally good. Like, if you just, whether you take it as part of the Blade Runner, like the, the Blade Runner world or not, like if you just took it as a movie on its own, as a fascinating science fiction movie on its own, it, it stands up fantastically well by itself. But then you wrap it into that legacy of the original movie as well. What an amazing modernization. Like, it's superb. So, of course, okay. that's all in my my opinion, and I'm very biased because I like science fiction movies and I love the original Blade Runner. I love um, the Vangelis soundtrack and, uh, you know, good old good old Hans. He's good value, isn't he? Good old Zimmer. He's uh, always good value. You know what you're going to get. You know, it's well, mm. no, we shouldn't say that because most of his work is wonderfully diverse. But uh, yes, excellent movie. Highly recommended. Mm, that is awesome. I I'm going to guess that you're also excited for Dune which is coming out very soon. Yeah, so that's actually the same director as Blade Runner yeah. 2049. I am look very much looking forward to it. The 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 you know the preview clips and stuff that we've seen on online look fantastic, but I'm a little bit unsure because I've never read the original book. I have seen the first Dune movie a long time ago and I do remember it as being, you know, really really amazing, but I don't it's not sort of so so far to the front of my memory like movies like Blade Runner or Star Wars or you know Tron or any of those classics um uh so I'm a little bit nervous just because when I go to see it I'm wondering you know will I will I get it you know <laughs> will I will I be able to see it through the eyes of somebody who absolutely loves the whole Dune universe um were you a fan of the original uh I confess I don't know enough about it like so okay. much of my understanding of it is in people who are fans basically shouting out quite loudly how difficult it would be to actually be true to the original material. Uh, okay. And uh, I'm like, oh, okay, um, that's cool. Um, you know, I guess we'll see how it goes. I'll wait for you to actually pass judgment before I go out and uh, consume it on my own. Right. Uh, I actually am making a lot of connections between Dune and another thing that is coming out right now, uh, Foundation, because that is, you know, also sci-fi, yes, but also the fans have a very similar perspective of the difficulty of taking this work and filming it and giving it a really proper treatment that conveys everything that was in the original source material. And right. so far, it seems like there are a lot of people that say Foundation didn't really quite hit it. Like, uh, if I search for a review, the first thing that comes on the web results actually said, they said Foundation couldn't be filmed, and it still hasn't been. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I get it. That's that's kind of clickbaity, but you know, it just conveys this was a similar feeling to what you know the Dune. Uh, fans have said for a long time still right. i'm looking forward to what <laughs> what everyone will say in a short month because that's all it is from the time of this recording to 
uh, Dune being finally out in the public eye. Yeah, well, you know, if um, uh, Dennis Dennis Villeneuve's work on Blade Runner twenty forty nine is anything to go by, um, I guess Hollywood at least recognizes him, recognizes him as the go to guy for uh, you know the right choice for um, you know bringing modernizations to some of these classic science fiction series. So watch out, Dennis. I guess Star Wars is next. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> let's not go there. That's a uh... That's a Pandora's box. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, I, I am a fan of him as a director. Um, I even though I haven't watched Blade Runner, I I thought Arrival was fantastic. I thought Sicario mm. was actually fantastic. So I am, I really should watch Blade Runner, and I am looking forward to Dune. Yeah, you really should. Uh, the even if just for um, the soundtrack alone, um, Blade Runner. 2049 and the the sort of the um the very i guess the highly sensitive way that uh zimmer and uh wolfish have modernized that classic vangelis sound i want to say modernized i guess i could say progressed or moved on that classic blade runner vangelis score for this new movie uh it's it's very clever you know there are obvious cues in there they say okay there's you know, there's the big, I don't know, what would have been a big Oberheim OBX pad or whatever it was, whatever the synth was that Vangelis was using to do those. Um, you know, there's that and there's the big, you know, uh, there's the sort of sultry, um, was it a saxophone in the original soundtrack? The I think it was. Yeah, anyway, enough said. You should really yeah. go and see it. It's, it's a great movie. All right. All right, that is on my list. I should just do that. Have like a nice little movie night in home and and uh, go ahead and grab that. Cool. You were talking about Oberheim. I'm just, before we end up, I'm just going to say, um, was it in Oberheim? Was it, um, Might have been for some reason, I'm thinking Voyatra. What, was it a Voyatra in there? No, what, yeah, I think you might be right. He had some no, oh, kind of... Oh, no, it's the CS80. Right. Oh, of course. Oh, of course, no. it's a CS80. When we're thinking Blade oh. Runner, we're thinking CS80. Yes. Of course. How embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, <It's okay>. Will. <laughs> I should have known it's, that. It's hard to keep track of all these scents, honestly. Especially ones that are just so, you know, way too rich for our blood. I mean, I cannot afford a CS80. <laughs> no, of course. That, I mean, that like how could we forget that the, this? I mean, that is the 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 defining sound of the CS80. Like the CS80 isn't really known for anything else. I don't think, except for Vangelis's use on Blade Runner. I thought it was yeah, it was either a, an OBX or a Jupiter or a but yeah, wrong. No, no, it's Yamaha. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh well, I guess we, we can always get the plug-in if we really want to get that yeah. CS80 sound, as, rather than spending. Uh, not just thousands, but tens of thousands on on that particular unit. <laughs> yes, I think I think we better end now before I say uh, something else embarrassingly ignorant <laughs> or it's, at least it's, forgetful. It's okay, you know we're all human here. We're <laughs> you know we're uh, we're allowed to make some mistakes here. I think I like I don't remember the Castlevania composers, even though I've listened to that how many hundreds of times over right. the last decades. It's like oh. Yeah, you know, sometimes those things just escape your brain. Yeah. All right. Well, that was an episode of the Game Audio Hour, episode 211. If you like us, 
feel free to give us a like, a follow, a subscribe. We are on the major podcast networks. And in addition to that, you could always give us a review on those platforms. If you want to find out a little bit more when it comes to what we're doing in Game Audio Hour World, you can follow us on Twitter. And there, for the most part, we'll just give you some updates on when the next episode is dropping. And until that time, bye.